0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Elizabeth Carney. I'm the chair of the Business and Leadership Forum, your host for today's program, which is entitled, When is More Not Better? How to Nurture Resilience. I'm happy to announce that we've added a poet to the end of our program today. She's the Youth Poet Laureate. Her name is Amanda Gorman, and the name of the piece we'll be screening is called Earthrise. So we have that to look forward to at the end of our program. We have many things to talk about with our speaker, and so I want to get going. Roger Martin, welcome, is a writer, strategy advisor, And in 2017, was named the number one management thinker in the world by Thinkers 50. He's the former dean and institute director of the Martin Prosperity Institute in Canada at the Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto. He's authored many books, and he's here to talk about his most recent one, When More Is Not Better. Overcoming America's obsession with economic efficiency, and we urge you to pick that one up. So, without more for uh, more ado, I will say welcome to you today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Elizabeth. Uh, the Commonwealth Club has always always uh, been, treated me so nicely with my many books, so uh, it's, it is great to be back, even if it's only virtually.
0: I thought maybe we could start out by understanding how this current book came to be. Would you tell us that story?
1: Sure. So I was Dean, as you mentioned, of the Rotten School from, uh, uh, from uh, 1998 to 2013. And when I stepped down in 2013, um, I was really worried about what I saw as, as a phenomenon that was uh, taking shape and accelerating, whereby the median family income in the U.S. was stagnating while the top... top 10%, 1%, .1%, 0.1%, 0.01%. Their incomes were taking off to a level that had never actually been seen before uh, in the country. And I worried that that pattern was potentially incompatible with democracy because in a democratic system, that median family... ...is in some sense representative of the swing voter. Not, they're not necessarily the actual family, but the band of families around there is arguably the, the swing voter. And so what I, what I wanted to explore is, well, why have we gotten to this situation where something that's never happened before in the U.S. is happening... A longer stagnation than ever before of median incomes, a greater acceleration of higher incomes than uh, than ever before. And can that work with uh, democracy or will those those median voters say, you know, this system isn't really working anymore. Uh, Let's explore something else. And as you know, right, at at that time, uh, you know, uh, polling on socialism was not was not very uh kind of high uh, uh especially compared to twenty twenty uh we didn't have bernie and the bernie bros uh uh you know for what's worth donald trump wasn't of you know uh, you know even in the in the uh in the picture but i think what's happened since has maybe reinforce that 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 was the bad thing to look at uh, back in 2013. So we explored it for six years at the Martin Prosperity uh, Institute, and the book is a product of that six-year exploration.
0: You start your book with uh, some history for us. Your book also starts with the uh, mentioning of economic efficiency, uh, which I think of as also being somewhat mechanistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the fellows that you uh, discussed at the beginning of your book is Adam Smith. Was he did he use a mechanistic model or does he have something more holistic?
1: No, he, Adam Smith I, I think was a great thinker and was anything but uh, mechanistic. Um, however, however, people have taken, the message of, uh, of Adam Smith or eight, one of his messages, messages, which is this idea that you could be more efficient with the division of labor, right? He had his story in, in the wealth of nations of the pin factory. And if you had everybody making an entire pin, you would be less efficient than if you had some people making the stems, some people making the heads and some people putting the, the, the two together. And so that idea of division of labor uh, to make things, uh, to make processes work more efficiently came out of, uh, out of Adam Smith. Now, as I say, he was a, he was a deep thinker. The theory of moral sentiments, as, as other famous book, showed a more sophisticated view of the economy. But, but increasingly, people have taken that to say, well, more division of labor, more simplification, that, that'll always be better. And that's a core theme of the book. Efficiency, more efficiency is better for a long time until it's not right until you've pushed it so far you know ice more ice cream is better <laughs> to, uh, until you had you know too much and it becomes bad bad uh, bad for you so so i would say adam smith though was seminal in starting people down this path of saying well more efficiency is better
0: right and so here we are today yeah. you want to talk to us a little bit more about this problem that
1: we have? Sure, sure. So we'd sort of accelerated. So David Ricardo followed that up with you know, comparative advantage. You know, he'd say, again, they, they all had the, these cute stories, right? For him, it was, hey... Uh, you Portuguese uh, farmers, you've got lots of sunlight. You should grow grapes, make wine. You uh, English farmers don't have, have sunlight. You should grow, uh, raise sheep, make make uh, make wool uh, and woolen goods. And and the two of you should trade because it's better than Brits trying to make wine and Portuguese uh, trying to make uh, to make woolen goods. Uh, you each have advantage, so there's another spur of efficiency. And then you had, you had uh, Frederick Winslow Taylor, scientific management in the early 20th century, saying, if you if you use stopwatches to do time and motion studies, you can figure out what's the absolutely most efficient way to do things. Edward Deming, Edward Deming, the great quality uh, uh, a guru, uh, talking about how to get rid of waste. All of these thinkers, with, I would say, the exception of Frederick Winslow Taylor, who I think was an extremist, um, all had a balanced view of, of this. But what's happened is, as a consequence of a long tradition of that, is we've come to see the economy as more of a perfectible machine that you can, that you can make ever more efficient until it's perfect, and you get rid of all waste and all inefficiencies, Um, And that's taken us to this extreme position where we kind of think it's a good thing to figure out how to ship jobs offshore to cheaper jurisdictions, because that makes you more efficient to take them from from unionized northern states to non-union southern states to say... Uh, G. It's more efficient to have flexible, flexible labor force, right? Where, where, where we just call them in when we need them, and and not not when we don't. And it's more efficient to have fewer people on the store floor in retailing uh, because you know we only need so many to to adequately serve the customers. All of those things are an attempt to perfect a machine by driving out every bit of waste. Uh, what is thought of as 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 waste in order to be the most uh, the most efficient and that's good to a point right and we're learning in things like COVID, where all the hospitals were saying what's the absolute minimum number of nurses we need emergency nurses we need right because they're expensive to have them sort of sitting around and not not doing anything uh, What's the minimum amount of PPE we can have in our stock rooms to make sure we don't have capital tied up uh, in, in all of this equipment, right? The problem with that kind of obsession with efficiency, sort of ultra efficiency, more is always better, it'll make the machine work better, is that the economy is not a machine, businesses are not machines, they're what we now know as complex adaptive systems, um, and what matters in a complex adaptive system is being more resilient right uh, because it 's constantly adapting and you want to have it be resilient to changes and Of course, in covid we weren't resilient and your local store right that you might you might uh, frequent whatever whatever uh, it is if there's a surge of people of customers in that store and they 've got the most efficient possible staffing they won't have enough staff for that little surge and customers will say, hey, you know, you don't care about me as a customer. I'll go shop somewhere else. Um, So so there's this push for efficiency that that results in no resilience. And and it also has this effect on the people in the system. That's not how people like to live and want to live. Uh, they don't want to live at the absolute edge of maximal efficiency like I, I would say do you elizabeth i mean do you do you like to have a day that we could argue is maximally efficient because you only take one minute between every meeting right you you schedule your meeting so that you have one minute of of breather before the next meeting I, I'm I sure sometimes that, that accidentally happens How do you feel yes. at the end of the day?
0: I like, I haven't had a moment to breathe.
1: Yes. And then how are, how good are you going to be the next day at doing the things you normally do? You know?
0: I think I would feel like I needed to have half the day off.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so while, while that efficiency on, let's say it's thir- Thursday when you had the back, 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 to back, back, maybe we could judge that and say, well, Elizabeth had a very efficient day. She accomplished a lot. But then if we look and ask the question, well, how is the week? And we have to have Friday as a write-off because you were, you were exhausted and you have to cancel half your meetings and the other half you do pretty poorly. That's because we didn't build in resilience. Didn't say, well, who is this person, Elizabeth? What, what matters to her? How, does her? how does her brain work, her body work in a more, in a more holistic sense? And say, no, we, we, she's not a machine. She's actually kind of this natural system. And unless you take care of it a little more holistically, it'll burn out and maybe and maybe maybe you did OK on Friday. But but, you know, you got sick and you were off the entire next week because because you were you were exhausted. We're we're doing that to the economy and to to, uh, to business in the pursuit in this mechanistic pursuit of efficiency where we break everything down into silos and say we'll we'll perfect this one and then we'll perfect that one and then we'll perfect that one and we think we can add them up to something that that uh, that works but it isn't it doesn't work because there are more complex interactions between mm-hmm. things in the system right there's interactions between your hr policies and your operations policies and your marketing uh, approach, but the way we would do that is we farm them out to different people and say, optimize that, right? So we'll say in a in a hotel, um, you know, the service department, the department for customer experience is saying, well, we have to have a really good customer experience. How do we get a good customer experience? We have all of these systems and processes for customer experience. Meanwhile the person in charge uh, in charge of kind of labor force uh, is told, well, you know, we got to keep getting more and more efficient. And so make sure our labor rates are the lowest possible. Mm -hmm. Right. And so then you hire people who say come and hope that maybe they can make a make ends meet and they find out they can't and they quit, you know, in the global hotel business, there's 70% annual turnover. So when you walk into a hotel, the the average person you talk to is on their way to a sixteen month career with that with that comp- hotel company. Sixteen month. So the people doing guest guest service can't figure out why the, they just can't get their guest service you know, kind of capabilities and scores and whatever up. Right? It's because this other part of the company is is making making sure they don't have the labor force necessary for it. Unless you're, of course, Four Seasons, right? The Four Seasons Hotel chain, which which uh, Izzy Sharp, the fantastic founder of it, sa- uh, said, here's how the system works. The only way that our our workers are going to treat our guests the way we want the guests treated is if we treat our workers the same way, Right. That is looking at it as as a system, right? And and so, what do you do? Uh, you a pay them the highest in, in the industry. the The working conditions are are just supreme. If you ever go and see where they eat in Four Seasons or they or they're, they're changing uh, quarters and the like, they're they they really are the highest uh, standard in the industry. Uh, they all have career paths, uh, and so instead of the average. Uh, the average uh, hotel worker staying sixteen months. The average Four Seasons worker stays twenty years. Who do you wow. think is better at delivering customer service? You know, yes, the people who you had a systemic uh, approach to, right? And and they spend more money on training. All of these all of these things uh, uh, that that treat it as a system that has to be has to be more resilient. It isn't all about efficiency. It's about a balance of those things and thinking thinking about real people. What? Well, how do you want that person to perform?
0: One of the recurring topics we've found in the last 18 months has had to do with the business roundtable. And when they mm-hmm. came out with this concept that maybe it wasn't your most recent quarter and your stockholders that you should pay attention to, but actually that there were other stakeholders, including your employees and your community and your climate, um, that, might, yep. that might indeed be part of the equation. And so we find, whether we're having an ethics conversation or a conversation about capitalism—that this is a recurring issue. How is it yes. that we reimagine what it is that we should be doing here in our ideal capital society?
1: Yes. No. And I and I, and, and I was buoyed by that that statement, and and uh, you know it came out. You know, kind of after I finished finished the book, but but one of the things I talk about in the book is the extreme danger of having one measure. When as a corporation you have one measure, whether it's shareholder value maximization, which happens to be I wrote a whole another book that I talked about at the Commonwealth Club uh, about how bad a bad an idea that is. But that's not the only bad singular I- idea if you have one driving idea, if you're Wells Fargo and it's, and it's how many, you know, it's how many accounts per customer you end up doing bad things because you, you take that again, it's reductionist. It's, that's the only thing that matters. The only thing that we're going to measure and, and it screws up. So the key, as I say in the book is to have multiple measures right? Here's where I like Southwest Airlines, right? Southwest Airlines says we want to be the lowest cost airline in America and the highest employee satisfaction airline in America, plus the highest customer satisfaction and the most profitable as it turns out. But you'd say, well, how on earth, how on earth can you be the lowest cost and the highest employee satisfaction? Don't you have to grind down wages, uh, uh, uh in order to be, to be low cost, Well, the answer is, is if you only wanted to be the low cost airline, that is the easiest and most obvious thing to do. But if you hold yourself to the standards that we have to have highest employee satisfaction, then that's kind of off the table. And what does it make you do? It makes you be cleverer, And that's what they are. They said, "Uh, "Okay, here's how here's how we're going to do it we are going to figure out how to run a system that is simple enough that it'll, it'll, it'll take fewer employees per passenger seat mile. So we'll fly all 737s, one kind of air, airplane. We won't have interline baggage uh, checking. We won't have advanced seat selection. Uh, we'll cross-train them so they can do a, do a lot of uh, uh, jobs. and And then we will pay them more than anybody else. You know, and you think you got to be kidding me. You want to be lowest cost and you're going to pay, you know, this huge cost item, all your staff more. Yes, because because we figure out a cleverer way to have them have deliriously happy, <laughs> happy uh, uh, time uh, and uh, uh, and be more efficient. So if you have those multiple requirements, it, it requires you to take this systemic view. And then if you have happy employees, how do you think your 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 uh, customers are going to feel? they're going to be happier too. It's just like Costco, right? Costco is another example. And again, notice this is not, I gave one high-end example, Four Seasons. And you can say, oh yes, in the luxury goods, that's okay. How about Southwest? <laughs> At the very low end of the price uh, uh, structure, they want to be a substitute for a bus. Uh, and and Costco in the extremely competitive uh, kind of club store uh, 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 market. But Jim Senegal, the She's a visionary founder and CEO, co-founder and CEO just says, you know, we're not paying minimum wage. That's insane. You know, you can't live on that. So you come to the, you come to the, come to work, you know, kind of worrying about putting food on the table and, and, and struggling to stay ahead financially. So how about, how about we pay $22 an hour rather than 12, $13 an hour? How about that? Right. And, and everybody's like, you've got to be kidding me. You You have to hit these low price points to get the customers in a problem they're monumentally uh, uh successful again because it, it he, he's not sort of going and saying there's the one thing that we're that we're doing it's no it's a system and you have to make sure the system works and is uh, and is resilient and his employees like adore the guy, they adore the company, they adore their jobs. Customers love being there. They shop there more, they buy more stuff, right? It, you know, it just, it, it all works. And, and to me, kind of if a company is willing to reject the notion that I can break this machine down into pieces, optimize each by maximizing uh, efficiency then add them all up and it'll work if they could just drop that notion and say i need to pursue multiple goals they can be mine i don't have to have somebody order me to do that but multiple multiple goals i'll view this as a system a complex adaptive uh system and i've got to figure out how to make that system uh work any company any company can do what Southwest, what Costco, what Four Seasons uh, does, and, and many and many more great uh, uh, great uh, companies. Joe's Stone Crab, a restaurant in 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 Miami. It, it's anybody anybody can do it, but they have to sort of throw off the shackles of of this sort of this reductionist, uh, obsessively efficiency oriented uh, theory to be able to do it.
0: One of the things that I noticed about your book is that you are offering a number of different audiences your thinking, business executives, political leaders, educators, citizens. And I hope that we will have a chance to look at all of these different audiences because I feel your book has all kinds of help to offer us at a time when with COVID, if anything, we see. Uh, how bad our choices are, as opposed to what 's yes. really working
1: we 're after living with, we're having to live with some bad past choices no no question but you 're right the, the, and, and again, if you just think about the core theory that i 'm uh, of the book, which is that it 's a complex adaptive system, um, you know how could it possibly be then that politicians solely can fix it, or business executives solely can fix it no, in a complex adaptive system. There are lots of parts of that system that have to work differently, and that's and that's why I, I, I say, hey, there's things citizens um, have to do to help out educators, business executives, uh, and and uh, uh, politicians, policy uh, leaders, uh, because that is the only way we're going to migrate our way back. I kind of consider ourselves like close, to, you know, we, we seem to be, uh, you know, kind of bound and determined to head toward a, the precipice, and I want us to dislike you know kind of take a couple of steps back then turn slowly and head and head away from the from the uh the precipice uh cuz i i'm i'm optimistic i i i think i think america can uh, can do it i'm not discouraged about the the capacity of america to do it but i i would be discouraged if let's say for example Elizabeth, american citizen said you like i'm fine uh, but you people, you politicians or you business leaders, you're the problem. That won't work. They are half right. they are those, those are the problem, but you are too right uh, and for unfortunately and so we all we all have to have to chip in.
0: I'm aware that you have some ideas about how we might educate our students and our business school students. And our sustainability and uh, regenerative education students, like you, you have some ideas about in the education uh, arena yeah. what we might want to do differently.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and, uh, and a couple of I'll just highlight a, a couple of uh, of them, and and uh, one one is to just stop teaching reductionism as a good thing, right. Like we've gotten to the point where where essentially we send the message, sometimes subtly and sometimes more explicitly that we're talking physics now. Right. And don't think about anything else or we're talking history now. Don't think about anything else. Here's a theory of history that I'm going to teach you or theory of physics or, you know, quantum mechanics or whatever, whatever it is, and and essentially to leave all else equal. Now, economist I'm an economist so I can bash economists a little more than average uh, you know we say well all else being equal elizabeth if you do this if you raise these prices those will go up right and elizabeth who hopefully is not an economist is sitting there saying but gee mister economist like it's obvious that they're not they're they're not equal right it's obvious that those things vary but you're told you're told sort of you know kind of proudly all else e- being equal this causes causes that we've got to stop mm-hmm. celebrating that right Yeah. And and you know you talk about sustainability environmental uh, things, right? There, that's that's to me in some sense just a huge obvious case of all else is not equal, right? Right? Yeah. Right? If 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 you say well you know we could be more efficient if we just if we just you know took the scrubbers out of those smokestacks and let them let them let them go, right? All else being equal, well you know. All else isn 't equal, that puts more you know, carbon into the atmosphere and particulate in the in the atmosphere, so no, Please. we have to ask the question we have to ask the question: how can we do this? Make a product efficiently enough to sell it, and do that, not make the planet a a worse place? Oh dear, those are con- internally conflictual, yeah so that's that 's now the signal to put your your thinking hat on and get cleverer.
0: Well, and um, to pay attention to the externalities. Yes, if the yes. economists are only paying attention to X, Y, and Z, then there's a whole universe of things that are...
1: Absolutely. So, so I actually, for what it's worth, hate the term externalities, right? Because like, I want to internalize them all, right? Mm-hmm. It, you internalize them all uh, when, when, when you say, I have to manage these two things. And, and I, can, I can promise you, uh, Elizabeth, um, you can teach you can teach uh, six, seven, eight-year-olds how to do that. We do that in a program that I talk about in it called uh, I Think, which came from teaching teaching this notion of holding two opposing ideas in mind at at once and being able to do something more clever that we created for MBAs first. Then we got these teachers who would come to our training programs and say – you know, we didn't think so. This is a funny thing. At first, we thought, we thought they were nuts. Uh, we thought, well, those those children aren't prepared yet to think that in that complex a way. And they were like, yeah, 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 you know, shut up. Uh, and they went off and started teaching. First, they started teaching like grade 10 and 11-year-olds, and they started teaching grade 6 and 7-year-olds, and then they started teaching grade 1 and 2-year-olds. And we have teachers who are teaching kindergarten kids to 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 essentially you know, internalize externalities and they can do it. And here's the sad thing. To a certain extent, they can do it better than the MBAs. Mm. And the only reason, I mean, their minds aren't more sophisticated, but what burden do they not have? They do not have the burden of being told for years and years, you have to choose. You can have X or Y, you can't have both. Mm-hmm. Life is about trade-offs. You have to make trade-offs. If instead uh, they're they're taught life will present you trade-offs, trade-off after trade-off after trade-off, and your job is to figure out your way, a clever way around them.
0: Mm.
1: Right? That's that's the that's the job. Like, am I in favor of destroying the economy to have sustainability? No. I mean, I think that would be easy, but. That's, there's no glory in that there's no, there's no wonder in that. How about having a, an economy that that produces a rising standard of, of living and and social mobility and and the, the especially the poor families uh, having a chance to to benefit from the economy? and the sustainable No, code there, that would be, that would be a wonderful, wonderful thing to aim for. But if we teach reductionism and we teach it's all about trade-offs and it's all about uh, reductionism, and if we teach the second thing uh, that I focus on, if we, if we teach there are perfect answers, um, you mm. should aim to get the right answer. There's no such thing. There just isn't. There's just better ones and worse ones. And when you come up with a better answer, do you know what your job is after that? Make it better still, because only when the better answer comes into uh, comes into existence, will you figure out the ways in which it's still not as good as it could be. Um, So the so think improvement, not perfection. And if you think improvement instead of perfection, you'll get farther than thinking about perfection. And so we have to send that that educators have to send that message. Your job is to improve, 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 whatever you're working on. And the way you're going to do that is by tackling what appear to be trade-offs between knowledge domains that are, are being taught as distinct, and you've got to figure out how to integrate across them. Now, if I hadn't had 10 good years now of the I Think program of watching kitties, I mean, we're talking kitties. Uh, and it's just it blows me away every time I watch them. If if I didn't have ten years in the tank of of that, I I, I wouldn't be so bold. Uh, uh, but it's utterly doable, utterly teachable. And here's the thing that that surprised us most about it, or or just caught us off guard. We just had no idea. It is the biggest motivator we've ever seen of teacher happiness. Wow. Right so our teachers when they start teaching this stuff get so charged up about teaching they say wow this is so exciting this is this is awesome and so some teachers have come to us and say i was you know it, you know when in many teaching systems you can retire pretty early if you put in enough you know years you start early and put in enough years you can retire when you're like 45 or 48 or something and and the like and and we've had teachers come to us and say until we started doing i think and starting to teach that, I was ready to retire. Now you couldn't drag me away. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is so exciting. This is so much fun. And the students, their eyes light up. Da, 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 da. So I, I mean, I don't want—I don't want to go go on and on on it. But but the the again the thing in the book that that I want to uh, reinforce is is the only way you could make it into one of my eighteen recommendations is the thing that I'm recommending. Has been done in the past successfully has been done successfully somewhere else, or is being done successfully now? no theoretical I, there are other things I could have said theoretically i think I think we should do this, but unless it 's been done successfully already it 's not uh, it 's not uh, in there uh, and so it 's entirely practical, pragmatic. here are ways that everybody uh, uh, can make it better, and quite frankly. There's nothing, none of those, none of those 18 involves making a job more painful or harder for the people involved. Like teachers, we're not saying, oh, you've got to do this hard, painful thing that's miserable, but it'll be good for you. It's like castor oil every morning when you come to school. It's this will be more fun, more fulfilling, more productive, more everything how about that? And they're like, I don't believe you at first, but then they talk to other teachers and the other teachers say, well, actually that's sort of kind of entirely true.
0: I have already gotten some comments and questions from the audience. Shall we, shall we, uh, integrate them in? What do you think?
1: (laughs) Yes, I would, I would, I would be, uh, uh,
0: this one if is from Lena, and she says uh, Efficiency and resilience seem to be the definition of opposite states. Efficiency applies, implies no additional capacity in the system, while resilience is the outcome of additional capacity to respond to changing conditions. How do you hold both efficiency? And resilience in one place—can they coexist?
1: So, uh, so I agree with the with entirely with the premise of the, the, the question questioner, and the the answer is you have to. They are attention that you have to hold in balance, kind of all the time, to- all the time, and always think about: Is there a clever way to be efficient and resilient? At the same at the same time, right? But I would say the main the main point is that, and this is why I call the book "Why More Is Not uh, When More Is Not Better." More is not better when you're pushing uh, efficiency so far that you get less resilience than you actually need, and you have to have a sense of the resilience that you actually need to know when to stop pushing uh, for more efficiency. That having been said, I think, I think um, you know uh, Costco is, in my view, extremely resilient, right? And highly efficient. And it's because it's chose to be efficient in a way that drives resilience. So what they've said is deliriously happy customers who spend a lot. And, and drive very high sales per square foot makes us efficient. Um, and if the way you get them to be deliriously happy is have wage rates and working conditions that make, make the employees exceedingly happy uh, and motivated and well off, then that system will be very resilient. Because customers who love you and employees who love you in a system that that uh, uh, that works. So I would say I would say aiming to get to get both rather than rather than kind of descending to a way of being that makes the trade off the most extreme. I wanted to just I wanted to loosen loosen the trade off uh, a, a little bit, like a Costco would have loosened that trade off.
0: And can that be taught? In the business school setting, then, obviously, yeah. the first graders already figured it out.
1: Yeah, the first graders have figured it out. Yes, yes, it can be taught, and we taught it uh, at the Rotman School while I was uh, there. That having been said, holy smokes, was it ever hard. Uh, it just It's the hardest thing I've ever done to get a school that had an academic tradition as they all do. It wasn't worse than other business schools in this respect though, but the academic tradition is it's all silos. And if you're a marketing professor, there is no obligation for you to teach anything about how, what you're telling them relates to what they learned in finance or what they learned in HR, or what they learned in operations. You have, you have zero implied or explicit obligation to teach that at all. So it's hard as hard as heck, but, um, you know, I, uh, you know, I sign up for hard things. So it's my, and point. yet I
0: have a sense that you think that that's one of the keys to getting where we want to go.
1: Absolutely. It, it's getting away from the, the, the machine metaphor drives drives a reductionist thinking and a view that you can perfect uh, and maximize efficiency if we can get away from that that reductionist uh, uh, view, then those other things will seem like less good ideas. But if you start out reductionist, uh, those seem like quite quite sensible ideas. Uh, so that's what that's that's why that is a I guess a, a target in the in the in the book. It's a target a target of uh, for citizens target, for educators target, for, for business people target, for, uh, for uh, politicians.
0: So there's something, it sounds like it means that we need to learn to make, take a more holistic view rather than a mechanistic approach.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And my, my view is, is, is that it will feel more comfortable to people Right. So I, 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 I do think that that people go into educational institutions, they go into jobs and have this powerful feeling. They're being asked to be unlike themselves in order to succeed in that environment. Right. So. Right. You're you're taught in history class. Don't talk about chemistry. Uh, don't talk about uh, English literature, Um, don't talk about civics. Uh, and, And you're sitting there to yourself but saying, but that's not how I operate. I have to think about all those things when I'm making a decision or thinking about something, right? Or are you going to business and you're told, you know, you have to figure out how to market this good. And you're sort of saying, well, but can't I can I also think about whether we should be producing that good or some other good or, or whether the way we're manufacturing it hobbles, the way we're doing it should no? And then you sort of say, but that's not, that's not how I think. Right. So, so I, I, I like to believe that in some sense, so one of my philosophies in life is it's always more enjoyable to enable water to flow downhill than to try to get water to stay at the top of a hill, right? So I think we have a vast system in education and business and government that's designed to push water to the top of the hill and keep it from running downhill. We're trying to keep people from being people. Uh, And so the good news here, I think, is, is if you just let the water flow downhill... Uh, things will get a whole lot, uh, a whole lot better. And it's way easier uh, uh, to do that than to be Kim building these dams and these buttresses and going after every leak and and patching it because the water does not want to be at the top of the hill. Don't know if that makes sense.
0: I got it. (laughs) Um, And if we respond to Emma, who's Mm -hmm. asked us a question, um, how do, do you have any tips for convincing executive leaders to value this kind of thinking, to value systems level resilience you talk about, especially when they're worried about hitting their bottom line?
1: Yeah, it's tough. I, I, I have, em- I have empathy uh, uh, f- uh, for those business executives who feel the, that necessity Um I guess I'd say a couple of things uh, uh to them. One is don't think that there is no choice in the matter. There are many firms, and I could just give a handful of them in the in the in the book that have figured out how to do it uh, uh differently. So that, that that would be one thing. See what they've uh see what they've done. Um, the second thing that I that that uh that I would say is You have to actually think about the path you're on and think ahead to the consequences of the choices you're making now. So if you say, well, well, there are all these good things that we could do, but we're not going to do them because we've got to make this quarter's number. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. You make this quarter's number, but then what about the next quarter? You've just not done a bunch of things that you know would be better for the company because you had to sacrifice them at the altar of this uh, this quarter. Do you think that's going to make next quarter easier? Hmm. No, it's going to make next quarter harder. But then you're going to have to sacrifice some more things in that quarter to make sure you can make that quarter because that quarter is now harder. Like it, it wears out pretty quickly. Right? So now so, we're back
0: at the top of the mountain trying to hold the water up the hill
1: exactly exactly and it's harder and harder harder to do so i sometimes i i do sometimes think that there are a bunch of 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 corporate executives who are like you're right the guy or the gal who uh locks him or herself walks into the jail cell you know uh um uh, locks the door behind them and throws the keys to the other side of the room and then starts on the bar, to, let me out of here, let me out of here. And it's sort of like, uh, uh, last time I checked, it was you who walked into the cell. You locked the door. You threw the keys away. What are you complaining about, right? So, so now that's in my, I'm less empathetic uh, uh, side. What I do think is that the, the and, I, and, I, and I make some suggestions of this for policymakers, we, the capital markets are screwed up. What used to be a huge advantage for America over countries elsewhere in the world was superior performing capital markets. Now they make the life of of businesses on average harder. And so we do need to do some capital market uh, reform and orient ourselves towards uh, the longer term. So do things like, I believe, shares should have time-based voting rights, right? If you hold uh, uh, shares for 10 years, you should get... uh, 3,650 votes per share uh, because you're a long-term shareholder. If some hedge fund comes along and it's owned over for five minutes, they get to vote one uh, kind of uh, vote. And if you sell your share uh, that has 3,650 votes to the hedge fund, 3,649 of those votes go away because there's a new owner who's, who's only owned it for a short period of time. So there are some things like that that would make it harder for for the hyenas, which are the activist hedge funds. They're the hyenas of the of the uh, of the business uh, world, from gathering in packs and attack attacking you. So there's where we need government to do some things, but we also need business executives to say, my job is to create a more clever answer, not the most kind of base answer, not the most defensive. Uh, answer: We've got to we've we've got to say, if it was obvious there is no choice, there would be no Costcos, there would be no Four Seasons, there would be no Southwest, there would be no Vanguards, there would be no Fidelities, there would be no Joe, uh, Joe Stone Crabs, etc. But there are, right? And you know they manufactured a different reality. They manufactured an extremely resilient reality that makes the world a better place for a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of shareholders, a whole bunch of communities, you know, you can, you can do that, uh, that too.
0: There's a, um, a critical element that you just mentioned, which is community. And that hasn't Mm -hmm. been part of our discussion so explicitly until now. Um, But certainly with our binary of either shut down for, uh, COVID safety or um, protect from uh, pro- and protect our health or have an open business environment that is not secure health wise. That's kind of been our binary in the last little while. So, uh, Georgia asks, is it possible to take these ideas and support m- small business to restart?
1: I, th- I think so. I mean, I guess I—I I, I always think. And maybe I'm just the ultimate optimist, but I always think there is there is a better way. And and the methodology that we that we teach is is you is you you take each model, and what we say is you sequentially fall in love with the model. And so let's just say, and we say, take them to extremes. Extreme lockdown. We just shut you know kind of you know, shut everything up down. And then ask the question: How does that model work? How does it produce good outcomes for the various players that are that are involved? Why? How is it good for uh, government? How is it good for uh, I don't know health, the healthcare system? How is it good for citizens? Let's just let's just uh, 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 say, um, and then and then. And then you figure that out. And then you, then I say, you forget about it and fall in love again with the, just don't do anything like literally just keep, keep on, keep on going. Be like the Spanish flu, which, which basically that's what we did in the Spanish flu. We just sort of kept on keeping on. And, you know, we got our part of the 50 million people who, 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 uh, who died from that. How does that, how, you know, how does that work? And what I say is the only way it works is if you're not saying, well, that's stupid. We wouldn't want to do that. You say you got to fall in love with it and think of only the good things about it. And then, and then you think about how you can take pieces of those two models and put them together in a better way to, to have a superior outcome. And this is what I discovered in my book, The Aposum of my Mind, that the great leaders are the ones who, when faced with an apparent either or, or choice, instead of choosing, they find a creative resolution that creates a model that is that is better than each, but contains elements of both. So one of the things that I that I that I found that, that is, you know counterintuitive to people. People are told when you want to come come up with uh, with a, uh, a great new idea, what kind of piece of paper do you, do you uh, get out, right? You get out a blank piece of paper. Right? Um, that sounds good, but isn't what I found. I found the opposite, that when you look at great, quote, new ideas, they actually are built from old ideas, pieces of old ideas assembled in a new and different way. And so I I I I think the answer the answer is not leave everything open or lock everything down. The answer the answer is is something, it's some clever uh, combination of uh, of those two things. Um, though I would say as part of it, I would supremely lock down uh, old age homes. Right, there are some things that are ob- there are some things that are obvious, and and again, I am on this one. I'm just not into, uh, and I am I, I, completely apolitical. I really am, and I and, but I'm not into 2020 hindsight uh, kind of on on this. There was so little that anybody, even the experts, really understood about this. Last time I checked, that is why they call it the quote novel coronavirus because it's novel and and we had to learn an enormous amount of of stuff i take greatest heart right now i mean from the fact that the death rate per case is so much lower Right? And I think part of it is is the the age of of, of the average patient is getting younger. And that's better because higher immune uh, immunity. But it's partially we just have figured it out, figured out. What do you do when they walk in the door? What do you do when do you do what you do? When do you what do you do after you do that that thing, et cetera. And that's all that's all the great learning that that any society gets when it when it's forced to think hard uh, about something. So I'm I'm you know I'm. For what it's worth, I'm cautiously optimistic that we're getting, we're getting smarter and smarter, uh, both, you know, we in, in, in America and uh, all, around the, all around the world. And there's variability of what people have done. And as soon as you get that, you can, you can say this seems to work better than that. It seems to work better than, than, than that. So, so I'm not, I mean, I, am I, you know, terribly saddened by a million people having to die? Uh, uh, for that to happen. Yes. Am I despondent about humanity's ability to, to figure this one out and move past it? No, no, not, not, uh, not at all. We're getting better.
0: We've talked a little bit now about educators. We've talked a little bit about business executives. Maybe we've touched on some of the politics, but (laughs) we haven't talked so much yet about citizens And I know you you have a whole area of your book that's suggestions and recommendations. So we have a question to start us off in this domain. Greg asks, you mentioned you're optimistic about our society achieving this resilience. From where does your optimism come?
1: Well, to to be honest, I'm, I'm... Uh, even though I'm uh, born in Canada, uh, I'm now live in the States, and I'm also an American uh, citizen. Uh, and and maybe maybe it's because I came to America and was not born here. I'm I'm optimistic about Americans, right? I I, I really am. I mean, I I don't want to sound modeling about, it, but I but uh, uh, but I am, and and so I I think when when given kind of. Useful and productive models. Uh, Americans, to me, adjust. Right, they're not fixed, fixed in their way of doing things, uh, that make them impervious to adjusting to to uh, to better models. Um, and uh, and I and I think when your model is. The great outdoors is so vast, you can just dump stuff into it and that'll be fine. Americans dump stuff into it uh, as if it will be fine. But in my in my view, when Americans have a model that says, "Ooh, you know, that has long lasting damaging effects, I think I think they they change. Uh, Now, we may say they're they're not changing as fast as they need to change. And and I'm I'm open to that argument. We may need to have a model model that that prevails. That says we have to change faster. But but the 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 at the core of Americans, I see people who will respond well to a changed model, and that's why I kind of attack models that I think are kind of sensible sounding models that are in a person's head. Uh, that will cause them to do things that aren't good for them. It's not because they're a bad person. I, I just don't think there are all that many bad Americans. Uh, um, in every society, there are some, but by and large, I, I'm I'm uh, I'm uh, confident. Um,
0: so when you mean but, when you say that, you mean uh, I throw something away. Well, there is no away to throw it to. Yeah, is that what you mean yeah. by yeah. Uh, a change in our? That life? would be
1: that would be one. Right, and I think, and I think, I think people get that in a way they didn't get it uh, uh, thirty or 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 forty years ago. Now they may need to to get it bigger, better, faster. (laughs) Um, But that's the case. And and one of the things, one of the models I'd like people to change in their head is is uh, the way they purchase stuff. And um, it turns out that that uh, when if if Elizabeth really loves. Amazon Prime and says, you know, gee, I can get everything shipped to me and starts down a path of buying 100% of her stuff at Amazon Prime, you're contributing to this outcome, this extreme outcome of because lots of other people will do that, too. And you get to a point where an entire ecosystem of retailers, small retailers, uh, kind of bricks and mortar retailers will kind of disappear and Amazon will get stronger, which enables Amazon to invest more, which enables them to put more people out of business and throw their weight around more. And we'll have this giant monopoly, right? Um, It's all because of the Elizabeth in in this story. And you can actually stop it, right? You can actually stop getting to that extreme result by saying, even though I love Am- Amazon Prime the most, I'm going to just hold myself to buying 50% of the stuff I buy from Amazon and I'll buy some from the corner store and I'll buy some from, I don't know, Target or, or, or uh, Costco or or uh, whatever. And if everybody just did that, you'd end up with fewer of these extreme, less resilient monocultures. And how hard is that? Is that like impossible for you to imagine? No. And so I'm fine with you if you like Facebook as your main media source. But if you subscribe to a local newspaper, uh, whatever your local newspaper is, and, and uh, kind of watch TV sometimes for, for your news, boom, there, there you go. You're breaking up these extreme results that, that uh, we're getting with a little change in your behavior. But I think the model in your head is probably what little old me does doesn't matter on that front. Right. But it does, it does. And we're, we are creating monopolies that then rule us. Uh, And that's, that's just not, not helpful. It's not resilient. It's a, it's a, it's a monoculture. Um, And
0: when I sat with an elder, an indigenous elder, he was a mm -hmm. Yakima chief and I asked him, what could we do to shift the balance that we need to shift here? And he said, want less. Mm -hmm. So when I think about your book and this extreme mechanistic model of efficiency, I also think, well, maybe there are ways where we don't always have to get more and more and more and grow and grow. And is this a part of what the citizens can think about differently.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful example. And, and I think, the, you know, the elder is probably pretty darn smart, right? Uh, he's seen a lot and uh, uh, or she uh, uh, and uh, and that's that's smart advice. Just ask this question is more better in this in this situation. Um, and, you know, it, it is up to a point. And after that, it's it's uh, it's not um, the other the other thing, the, another thing I say about citizens is is, uh, you know, don't be shy to engage in collective action. Right. One of the themes and the research in our book was people feeling sort of disengaged and kind of what the heck can I do? And this is all too big and complicated for me. Um, And I understand that for sure. Uh, uh, I mean, it is hard to figure out what they're doing in Washington often. Uh, uh, But don't underestimate your ability to make a change. And one device I like is the boycott, right? Now, we've had boycotts. You know, Cesar Chavez, you know, quite heroically, you know, boycotted people buying grapes, uh, table grapes to, to, uh, help, uh, organize the, and unionize the, the farm workers. And so that, that I'm not saying anything against that, but that's sort of the negative side of it. Don't do this. There's a positive side to it, to it. Bicots. If you, if you see, if you see somebody doing something that you really like, right, join a bicot in the, in, in, uh, uh, in their, uh, in their favor, and there's a where you can go on and, 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 and join that. That's collective action saying we're going to get together with other people so that we do have more mass uh, and, and, we, and we reward activity if you want. So it's not all negative. It's all, not all punitive. Now, it is punitive in a certain sense in that if you're buying more of something, you, maybe you'll buy less of something else. But it, it sort of rewards the, rewards the positive uh, uh, behavior. Yeah. Um, And another thing I think uh, citizens have have got to do, this is a little more subtle, I guess, and and complicated, but um, it's just sort of an insist on a reciprocal relationship with, with politicians. Um, Right. To too great an extent, I think, and I trace this to, to uh, back to the contract with America. And again, I don't, I don't say that because it was Republican, Newt Gingrich Republicans as opposed to Democrats. Uh, But it's just an example of the contract with America essentially saying, if you do one thing, right, you the citizen pull one lever in the voting booth or circle one box in the voting booth, uh, we will do these, all these things for you. Change 10 rules put eight rules, put these these 10 uh, legislations to a vote on the, uh, the floor. It's just unequal. You don't we're not asking you to do a darn thing. And we're going to do it all for you. What, you know, how does life work out well in that set of circumstances? Right. If we were, you know, I don't know if we were business partners and, and uh, I, I said, you know, Elizabeth, all you have to do is show up and sit in the corner all day long and I'll do everything else. How long are we gonna be, you know, good partners in that, in that uh, business?
0: That's fine because for me. Because it's not a
1: reciprocal relationship. <laughs> <laughs> you want it forever, you know. <laughs> um, and, and so I think, we've, I think we've adopted that, which is to accept vast promises by our politicians, right? W- that involve us doing nothing Uh, And instead, I mean, and this gets back to, you know, I kind of like the JFK line, right? Uh, Although that's maybe too extreme, you know, ask not uh, what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. It's ask both. Say, if you'll do this, I'll do this, right? If you put, let's say, this piece of environmental legislation up, I will behave this way. Say that. Act that way. Talk to your politicians that, uh, uh, that way. Don't accept this this sort of, oh, oh they'll do everything uh, for us because then they'll fail, right? They can't do uh, that. They've, they've, they just fail left, right, and, and center. Uh, the contract with America sounded good, but, but even with a Republican, R- Republican House, Republican Senate, Republican president, the vast majority of the contract with America bills did not get passed in Senate. So, like, you know, it's, it's impossible to do these things alone. That's, again, a theme of the book. It's, it's impossible for the politicians to do things alone. So ask them to tell you what you need to do and be part of, of uh, solutions. So those are some of the, the citizen things.
0: Well, and that's a wonderful place for us to end. If you have a couple more thoughts for us, great. But other than that, I would just like to thank you.
1: Thank oh, it's, the, my, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And the Commonwealth Club is near and dear to my heart. I mean I think you guys do such a fa- fabulous job for your local community, but because it goes out on uh, NPR to a broader community. So I'm just my heart is full of thanks for uh, all you do to help me and my work.
0: Well, we have many fine programs at the uh, club, and now everything online. so'll the audiences will be able to find our conversation today and revisit it uh, and think about your ideas and somehow the idea that you and the Yakima chief are, uh, share an idea, which is when more is not better. uh, I think it's really great. Please take time if you can to listen to our poet, our youth poet laureate to finish up this topic for today. Thank you. Thank you, Roger.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much.
2: On Christmas Eve, 1968, astronaut Bill Anders snapped a photo of the Earth as Apollo 8 orbited the moon those three guys were surprised to see from their eyes a planet looked like an earthrise. a blue orb hovering over the moon's gray horizon with deep oceans and silver skies it was our world's first glance at itself our first chance to see a shared reality a declared stance and a commonality a glimpse into our planet's mirror and as threats drew nearer our own urgency became clearer as we realized that we hold nothing dearer than this floating body we all call home. We've known that we're caught in the throes of climactic changes some say will just go away while some simply pray to survive another day. For it is the obscure, the oppressed, the poor, who when the disasters declared done still suffer more than anyone. Climate change is the single greatest challenge of our time. Of this, you're certainly aware it's saddening, but I cannot spare you from knowing an inconvenient fact because it's getting the facts straight that gets us to act and not to wait. So I tell you this not to scare you, but to prepare you, to dare you to dream a different reality where despite disparities, we all care to protect this world, this little blue marvel, this little true marvel to master the verve and the nerve to see how we can serve our planets. You don't need to be a politician to make it your mission to conserve, to protect, to preserve that one and only home that is ours to use your unique power to give next generations the planet they deserve. We are demonstrating, creating, advocating, we heed this inconvenient truth because we need to be anything but lenient with the future of our youth. And while this is a training and sustaining the future of our planet, there is no rehearsal. The time is now, 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 because the reversal of harm and protection of a future so universal should be anything but controversial. So, Earth, We will fail blue dots, we will fail you not, just as we chose to go to the moon, we know it's never too soon to choose hope, we choose to do more than cope with climate change, we choose to end it, we refuse to lose, we do this and more, not because it's very easy or nice, but because it is necessary. Because with every dawn, we carry the weight of the fates of this celestial body orbiting a star. And as heavy as the weight sounded, it doesn't hold us down, but it keeps us grounded, steady, ready. Because an environmental movement of this size is simply another form of an Earthrise. To see it, close your eyes, visualize that all of us in this room and outside of these walls or in these halls, all of us changemakers are in a spacecraft floating like a silver raft in space, and we see the face of a planet anew. We relish the view we witness. It's round green and brilliant blue, which inspires us to ask deeply, holy, what can we do? Open your eyes. Know the future of this wise planet is right in sight. Right and all of us trust this earth uprising, all of us bring light to exciting solutions never tried before, for it is our hope that implores us at our uncompromising core to keep rising up for an earth more than worth fighting for. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts,
0: Google Play and Stitcher.